Well, in a season of vacations, uh, everybody's doing road trips these days. My wife and I, we had the opportunity uh, to join my family in Tennessee a few weeks ago. And uh, we were driving through the back mountains on these back roads of the Cumberland Gap. And almost every hill has another small church. And every one of these small churches has a marquee. You know, those, those signs with the movable letters. Um, it seemed like they were all over the place. And instead of telling you useful information about the church, um, they, it was very helpful. They graced us with very interesting thoughts as you drove by. Um, and the more I researched, you know, the more I researched different messages that churches have on marquees, which means I looked on the web all over the place, the more I knew I needed to share some of these with you because some of you still have trips ahead of you. And, uh, and so here are my top 10, you know, this is the David Letterman or whatever, top 10 favorite funniest church marquees that I've come across. So the number 10 funniest church marquee says, silence is golden, duct tape is silver. I don't know if that was children's ministries that put that up there. I don't know how that had to do with the church, but there it is. Number nine, don't give up. Moses was once a basket case. Number eight, we know you had to use Google Maps to remember where the church is. I thought that was a little bit scolding from the church marquee, but there it is. Uh, Number seven, do not criticize your wife's judgment. See whom she married. Um, Ooh, yeah. (laughs) Number six, Mari is not the only place to find your father. (laughs) There's some understood knowledge going on in that one. Um, Number five, and I thought this was apropos, the class on prophecy has been canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. (laughs) Number four, I know where your meth lab's at. God, (laughs) that was very specific. Um, I guess that was one pastor talking to one of his congregants, I guess. Uh, Number three, do you know what hell is? Come hear our our preacher. I took a little offense to that one. I hope this is one reason why we'll never have a marquee. I don't want ever that one to, to pop up. Number two, Jesus is the rizzle for the sizzle. I thought that one was pretty awesome. And then number one, God is greater than Chuck Norris, just in case there was any question. And, and you know, honestly, you think about Chuck Norris, people say, you know, Chuck Norris, he caught a cold and he made it sick. You know, Chuck Norris is the reason Waldo is hiding. Chuck Norris, he can make a fire rubbing two ice cubes together, right? He's this intense guy. But honestly, only God, this is the one thing, reason, one of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons why God is so much greater than Chuck Norris, you know, is, is only God can make the dead live. You know, Chuck Norris, he can beat the tar out of you even though he's in his 60s, and he can beat you down, but only God can lift you up. And I think there's something there, all joking aside, is what we really want and someone that we look up to. We can joke about Chuck Norris as he tears us apart, but we all really want to live when it gets down to it. And I I don't mean merely existing forever. Anybody can, well, not anybody, but we can exist forever, but existing forever in pain, existing forever in anxiety and depression and hurt, that's a lot more like dying forever than it's ever been about living forever. What is living forever? I think we've captured some glimpses of that. Um, For example, when you're working in your job and you're firing on all cylinders And you realize at that moment, if no one were to pay you one penny for remuneration, 
you'd be fine with that because this is the way you were designed. Everything is working together and you're so excited and it's energizing you. Another one of those moments where you know you're really living is you're sitting with friends over dinner and you realize it's been two and a half hours, but it felt like five minutes. Another one of those moments when you know you're really living is when you're immersed in God's word and the beauty of who he is just overwhelms you to the point that you cannot move away but just end in prayer. Or the moment when you're gathered in corporate worship and all the voices crescendo to a loud roar or you're serving beside one another in a various aspect in your community, excited to see the common good flourish. I mean, this is examples of really living. This is the life and life abundant we all long for and that Jesus himself proclaims he can give. Only God can make the dead live both today and tomorrow. And this morning... In our passage, we're going to drive through um, this amazing prophetic vision. It's very bizarre from Ezekiel. And then we're going to highlight two timeless marquees that God would give us out of this vision here. This is the flow of the text, Ecclesi- or Ezekiel, one, uh, Ezekiel 37, chapter or verse 1 through 14. I'm going to get it right. Ezekiel 37, verse 1 through 14. Well, this year we've been traveling through the whole book of the Bible. We're trying to encourage one another to read one chapter a day, daily, um, as a community. And we've called this series Open Here. And this summer, we've been in the very invigorating but very challenging excerpts of the prophets. They're very confrontational for two reasons. One, they have this spoken word style of slam that tends to smack us in the face with our own sin. But secondly, they have these prophetic visions, these ecstatic experiences that are very outside the norm of our own experiences. It gives us a window, a lens, into our broken lives and our sin-filled lives through the vision of a holy and loving God. Well, this morning we enter into the writings of the prophet and priest Ezekiel. And what we find is we find Israel, after generation after generation of continual pushing God away, that finally God gives them over to what they want. He frees them from his protection. And so they're conquered, and they're actually dispersed and deported by ancient, the ancient empire of Babylon. It's here amidst hopelessness, amidst failure, amidst pain, a place that we can all relate, that we find Ezekiel in Babylon. He's been deported with a crew to be in Babylon, but he's actually been called for a unique task to speak back to the remnant who remains in Israel and Judah, to speak to them as the mouthpiece of God. So our first step in God's word is into a gruesome scene here in Ezekiel. And we're carried by the Spirit of God with the prophet Ezekiel on this ecstatic journey to a valley of death. And and when we look out, we see tons of human bones glistening in the hot Mediterranean sun in this valley. And if that isn't enough, God, for whatever reason, decides to take Ezekiel and give him a tour of this valley of dry bones. Look in verse 2, he says, He led me around among them. He's walking in and throughout the bones. And you could almost imagine Ezekiel's response. He shows up in this valley and he says, What is that? Is that what I think it is? This is bones. And he's walking through and he goes, Oh, there's more bones. More bones. I'm starting to get your design theme here for this valley. And, and for me, I've, I've, I haven't had a ton of experience with death, but in the experiences that I have had, and many of you can, uh, can uh, um, agree with this, is that your first reaction is very much visceral. 
You may not scream when you walk into a room, but your heart shakes and it shouts that this isn't the way the world was meant to be. And no amount of makeup or Sunday clothes can ever dress up our bodies to hide the eeriness of death. You see, this isn't some cozy long walk with God along the beach that Ezekiel's having with God here. But rather, amidst this tour, the rancid reality of death dumbfounds our prophet. You see, he's first amazed at the sheer volume of bones that he sees here. And it's a signal that there was a a mass catastrophe in this land. But not only that, but the the bones are very dry. There's not only a ton of them, but there's very, very dry bones. These bodies, they must have been sitting there with an improper burial for vultures to feast upon them until there was nothing left but skinless, shiny, white bones. Leaving a corpse exposed like this, it was, it was an example of dishonor. It was a disam- uh, an example of, uh, of being punished and also an example of a curse on the people. And so while Eze- Ezekiel, he stands next to the author of life and he looks around at the valley of cursed death that surrounds him. Well, after Ezekiel, he's tiptoed through human remains here. He, God asks him a question in verse 3. Son of man, can these bones that surround you, can they live? Can the joy of life, which seems hopelessly lost, ever return to such an awful God-forsaken place? And Ezekiel, he may have crazy visions, but he wasn't nuts. I mean, he knows, just like most of us, that 10 out of 10 people who die, what? Stay dead, right? And these folks are deader than dead. They're bones. There's not even any flesh Left. And so he's asking himself, can this whole valley of bones be restored to life? And yet he won't succumb to hopelessness. Knowing God is compassionate, he can't accept that death will have the final word on this valley. God, who has the power to make the impossible possible, the same God who breathed life in the creation at the dawn of time, can also breathe life into these dry bones, even into what is hopelessly dead. God can bring life. But what he's experienced so frequently in life and who he knows God to be in his character is smashed together and he's in a tenacious moment. And so Ezekiel, full of more questions than he is of answers here, he takes the safe route and he throws the ball back into God's court. He says, O Lord, O Lord God, that only you know. It's kind of a neutral statement. It's kind of like when somebody says something and you say, oh, that's interesting. It means absolutely nothing. It means I don't know the answer and I'm not going to give you a statement on which way I'm leaning. But God, he doesn't let us stay in our doubts, which is so beautiful about his loving care. And he wants to guide us and involve us in finding the answer. So he turns to Ezekiel and he gives him this strange command, saying, in essence, I want you to talk to these bones for me. Even though there are no ears to hear, even though there's no mind to fathom what you're about to say, I want you to preach my message to bones. And I, I want you to imagine your boss coming into you and saying, hey, can you go into the uh, printer paper and bring them up to speed on our sales numbers? Or your spouse coming in right before you go to bed, hey, can you go tell the dryer to, to, to have a good night right before we go to bed? You'd think they're nuts, right? This is an inanimate object. There's no life there. Why on earth would you begin to have a conversation with such a thing? And the difference is, obviously, this isn't your boss or your wife, but God's talking with Ezekiel And I'm sure he's asking what on earth is going on. But the role of a prophet was never to negotiate 
with God's commands, but only to obey them. You see, the role of a prophet was to be an instrument of God, a, a means of which God could use you as he sees fit to plant his word wherever his good pleasure guides him. To be a prophet, you spoke what God told you to speak, speak to the crowd he told you to speak it to. And for Ezekiel, he had a very dead crowd. Um, <laughs> you know, literally. And, and in verse 5, we hear God's promise of a revival to these bones. Look in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. That which seemed beyond decay is promised life again. And it's given here in this imagery of a reversal of decomposition. Uh, the first, the sinews will be attached to bones. Then the skin will be covered or pulled back over the muscles and vessels as if you're pulling on your long johns in winter. And then, you know, it doesn't end there. These resurrected people will know life and life abundantly because they ultimately know who God is. We can't stop at just the physical. Anything short is stopping short of really living. This is Ezekiel's message, and this is Ezekiel's crowd. Bones are to not merely become bodies, but living believers in God by the power of God's word proclaimed over them. And so in obedience, Ezekiel talks to dry bones. Well, as we keep driving through this vision, when you get to verse 7, we find a changing landscape. And, and while Ezekiel is in the midst of proclaiming God's word, he hears this loud noise. It's this rattling that grows to the volume of an earthquake. The valley of full of bones begin to assemble in mass into bodies, just as God had promised they would. And Ezekiel witnesses and wonder the power of God's word as the valley of bones, they first align into bodies. And then skin goes on exactly as he prophesied they would. And then there's a moment where God says, Ezekiel, just keep going. Just keep going. Keep prophesying. Directing the life-giving breath to bring new life to these bodies. And similarly, as God breathed the first breath into Adam in the Garden of Eden, he breathes new life into a valley full of bones. And we see this collective renewal of a people and we find out that it's actually an army of people that had been killed in battle. A people who were thought dead, cursed. They were forgotten. They were cut off. They experienced the power of God's work through his word, a removal of the curse, and the gift of new life. I mean, can you imagine the look on Ezekiel's face? This is what a compassionate God he longs to bring. This is what an all-powerful God he can bring. And this is what a sovereign God, as we see, will bring. You know, I have dreams about preaching. Um, <laughs> like I had one before our grand opening last week. It was on Saturday night, but it was nothing like this. It had everything to do with, I would put on my shirt and then I'd realize I didn't have my pants on. <laughs> then I'd put on my pants and then suddenly my shirt would disappear. So eventually I made the decision, what's the, you know, the, the least distracting. So I went on without a shirt and there were no valley of dry bones. There were no, no valleys. There were no uh, excitement. It was just no clothes and a lot of awkward stares in my dream. But thankfully, Ezekiel's vision isn't a stress-filled or stress-driven vision. It's a God-given vision. It's not a dream that we have when we're nervous, but it's a vision that God gave Ezekiel because of his passion of redemption of the world. And after witnessing this, 
you, you and I, we both kind of stand there with Ezekiel and we ask, what just happened? What on earth does this mean? And God, he knows our limited nature. And so he pulls us aside with Ezekiel here in his word. And he begins talking us through what it means in verses 11 through 14. So as we walk through the ex- explanation here, I, I think this is where God reveals at least two timeless marquees for his people. And the first marquee is that God doesn't find good people and make them better. He doesn't find good people and make them better. He makes dead people live. Look in verse 11. The first thing God explains is who are the dead ones who make up the bones. In verse 11, Then God said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. These are my people. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. After years and years of Israel abandoning God, God wouldn't allow his life-giving name to be associated any longer, this God of life, to be associated with practices of death, child sacrifice, adultery, these empty idols made out of wood and stone and precious metals that are full of nothing but the metals themselves. The violence of the abuse of the poor, he could stand no longer and have his name associated with such actions. And so God gave both Israel and Judah over to their gods of violence and they're destroyed and scattered amongst the nations. With no home, no identity, no God, they feel hopeless. And it's here that Israel realizes just how dead they are. She felt hopeless. She felt fragile and dry like these bones. But here's the thing. This isn't just talking about Israel, is it? This is speaking to us, to God's people across all times. And the way Israel felt is one example of what we all feel like when we're living our lives apart from God and Christ. God doesn't find you as a good person and try to help you be better. He finds you when you're dead, when you are part of this valley of dry bones, and he offers you life. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that everyone before embracing God in Christ is dead. And this is how he says it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Do you realize just how desperate you are? Do you realize that your life apart from Christ is death? I mean, some of you this morning are dead and you don't even know it. Do you remember the movie Sixth Sense? I'm sure so many pastors have used this movie for so many illustrations. But I think it's a great one. At the same time, in, in the movie Sixth Sense, right, Bruce Willis, he's this child psychologist, and he's trying to help this young child who's, who sees dead people. And this whole time, he's, he's a really nice guy, and he's just trying to help this kid deal with his issues. But the twist at the end of the movie is that Bruce Willis himself is dead. And he made this whole world, he justified his existence to say that he was still alive. Yeah, his relationship with his wife was rocky. They never talked. But he was still alive and they were still married. Yeah, the world was rough and people always ignored him. But he was still alive. Or so he thought. Where in reality, he was dead the whole time. 
And some of you this morning, you don't want to come to terms with the fact that you're dead apart from Christ. And we have to ask ourselves, how long will we live in denial? Any world that we create that does not have God at the center is a fake world. And any world that does not have God at the center will always be a second-class world than what he has called us to, what he has designed us for with him at the center. Now, maybe some of you this morning, you may admit that you have some problems. You may admit that uh, life isn't perfect, but you don't want to say that it's as bad as being dead. You don't want to say, uh, you know, that, that, that you yourself are dead. But you may say, okay, okay, so I, I've made some mistakes and some imperfections in my life, but I'm no worse off than anyone else. Everyone makes mistakes, right? The fact is, you may not even feel dead at times, but feeling dead and being dead aren't always in line as much as we'd like to admit. So for example, when you have the flu, symptoms are so severe that you go to the doctor to receive some medicine to recover, right? You obviously are in pain, you obviously are hurting, and so you have to go to the doctor to, to get some relief. But death isn't always this obvious. Sometimes, and in certain situations, there are those who have terminal cancer. And some of you have friends and family members who have been through this. They can be sick for years without the slightest knowledge of sickness. They may have a pain here or a twitch there, but everybody has pains and cramps. This is something we disregard. Until one day we find out we have one week left to live. And then it's too late. Do you realize how desperately dead you are, whether you feel it or not? You're desperately dead apart from Jesus. And for those of you who find your life in Christ, um, ask a second question. Do you realize how desperate your friends and family are? Uh, When you're having coffee with a friend who doesn't know Jesus, Are you reminded that you're sitting there with someone who is dead and ending and on a trajectory of death? It's not very politically correct, you know, to say this. It's not very comfortable to think about. But we need to, if we truly care for those who are our friends and our family members, to remember what state they are currently in and where they're heading apart from Jesus. When you're getting together for the holidays with family members who don't know Christ, do you remember that they're dead apart from Christ? that they're heading to a trajectory of death. It may not be a flu-like death. They may have their act together. They may be very nice people. But apart from Christ, the cancer of sin eats at every man's soul unless he's found in Jesus. And this is why I think the picture of baptism is so important. Um, We have a baptism service at a pool this August, which is really fun. Baptism is celebration, and so we try to make it that. Um, We gather together, we eat tons of good food, and we swim. We try to wait 20 minutes after you eat, but that doesn't always work out. But, you know, and we get in there and we celebrate the decisions of our new brothers and sisters in Christ who have found their identity in Jesus. We don't partially dip you in the water, do we? We don't say, well, we're going to just put your hand or your foot or I'm going to squirt your eyes with eye cleaner. No, we immerse your whole body into the water because you're completely dead apart from Christ. And this is the picture that it portrays, buried in the likeness of his death and raised to new life with Jesus. It's this image and a proclamation to the community of Christ that you now are found, you find your identity in Jesus. You're not mostly dead. And I was thinking about that phrase. You know, Miracle Max in the movie Princess Bride, he says, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. 
Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. And in Ego Montoya, he says, what's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. You know, you're not here, sitting in here. If you do not know Jesus, you're not mostly dead. You're completely dead. And no matter what your testimony is, no matter what you've done or no matter what you haven't done, when you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, you go from death to life. And for me, I was thinking about that even this morning uh, as we think about our family and our friends who don't know Jesus. Um, I'm starting to get to that age now where the people that I've been praying for and am in relationship with, I've been praying for decades now rather than just days or weeks. And for me, I can tend to have, and maybe you've been there before, this hopelessness. It's like, oh, I've been praying for them for years that they might see the life of Christ and see how beautiful it is this side of the cross. But nothing's happened. And here we have a beautiful picture that no matter how hopeless, no matter how gloom, no matter how dry the bones are, God can bring life in the midst of death. God can bring his glory in the midst of brokenness. He can restore no matter how far gone. And this is something that gives us great humble hope. Humble in the fact that we too were once dead and the only reason we're alive is because of God's grace. But also hope because as we know about family members, brothers, sisters, parents, cousins, grandparents who don't know Jesus and we long for them because we're driven by the love for them that we know at the end of all things you either are with Christ or without him. And life or death are the two options. There's a fork in the road. We long for them to find their identity in Christ. And we have hope that in God's grace, he breaks through their hearts to show them the love and the life he longs for them to have. So this is the hope we have displayed here. Well, our second timeless marquee God gives us is not only that, that God doesn't find good people and make them better, and make, he makes them alive once they were dead. But God doesn't give us options. This is the other marquee. God doesn't give us options, but he alone makes dead people live. Look in Ezekiel 37, verses 12 through 14. God says to Ezekiel, Therefore prophesy and say to them, this dead people, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Who makes them live? Look at all the personal pronouns, you know. Grammar 101. There's only one person acting in this whole section. God alone makes dead people live. And for me, as I'm having conversations with folks, that's so refreshing. It's so refreshing to know that God has called me to be faithful in community and loving and continually talking about who he is and what he has done in my life. But ultimately, it's God who's going to do the work in people's hearts. We can rest in confidence of his Holy Spirit's work to convict and to bring about the truth in the lives of those who are lost in darkness and death. 
This is why the gospel of Jesus is called good news and not good advice, right? News is something that's happened in history to which you can choose to live in light of or not, despite, and it won't, it won't change its truthfulness, where advice, on the other hand, is someone's opinion on any given situation. A lot of people have a lot of different advice, but honest news tells the same story no matter whose mouth it comes out of, right? It's the same because it's retelling a historical reality. But if we're good people, just trying to be better, we need to get good advice. If there were various options available for life, then I'd like some good advice on which is the best one. But since there's only one way to life, and we are dead, we need to hear good news that someone has conquered death for us, that someone has taken our penalty for us, that someone is offering life to us, and his name is Jesus Christ. Returning to Ephesians chapter 2, continuing Paul's thought here in verses 4 through 6, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All God's promises find their yes in Jesus as the author and the perfecter of our faith and our lives. And so I ask you this morning, where are you looking for life? Are you only really living when your bank account is stable? Are you only really living when you're escaping life in a movie? Are you only really living when you're buying that next dress or that new stereo system? I love a good surround sound system then your life is still dry bones, even today. And you haven't surrendered to the life-giving breath of the gospel in your life. The life God offers, it begins today. It's not just something we look forward to. It begins today and it goes on forever. This is the good news of Jesus. And so I ask you, is your life vibrant enough to have joy in the midst of a tight budget? Is your life vibrant enough that you don't need to run away? From, it, from reality? Is your life vibrant enough that you find great pleasure out of giving rather than always receiving? Is your life vibrant enough that you don't fear death? This sort of life, really living, is only possible and sustainable because of God. There is no other option out there. And because God became really human in the person of Jesus Christ and really died and really defeated sin and death by rising again on the third day, we have the opportunity to really live today and forever. Death doesn't have to have the final say on your life. God longs for you to know that he, that he alone is God. He's consistently showing himself through what? Throughout the, the, this, this chapter here in Ecclesiastes, I keep saying Ecclesiastes. I guess there's something in there and meaningless for whatever reason. Ezekiel chapter 37, he consistently shows that when he's bringing new life, that's when we know who he is. Once I've breathed new life into you, then you'll know that I am the Lord. Not this false God that's empty and frail and leads to destruction and violence, but I'm a God of life and life abundant. And when you experience that life, you'll know all the more who I am and what I long for you. Only he can make the dead alive. And so I ask you this morning, will you trust in the death of Jesus 
so that he might give you the life that is only found in Christ.